questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. How did the Titanic, with double layer of one inch thick steel plate on her bottom, 15 watertight doors, and 73 additional watertight compartments receive enough damage from a mild collision to cause her to sink in just two hours and 40 minutes? Why was the public never shown the frames of Hindenburg's initial fire, even though there were 22 professional photographers at the event to film her docking? If Titanic's hull was damaged so catastrophically, why were none of the survivors who testified able to describe any kind of impact? Even though there was no evidence, why was a static spark theory selected as Hindenburg's nemesis when it had never occurred in nine years of scheduled flights? Finally, the latest evidence from the bottom of the Atlantic allows the truth about the Titanic and Hindenburg tragedies to be told. Was the Titanic quote-unquote accident a premeditated event? Was it deliberately sunk? If so, how and why? Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, at VeritasRadio.com. And to tell us more, tonight's special guest is Kenneth Price Jr., the semi-retired freelance engineer, writer, and musician currently residing in Washington State. A brief history includes his graduating as a mechanical engineer from the University of California in 1976. Kenneth then spent 14 years working for a major oil company. And we have a very extensive bio right on our website. Kenneth is the author of Titanic and Hindenburg, Two Tragedies, One Plan. And he joins us directly from Ocean Park, Washington. Hello, Kenneth, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Yes, hello. I'm very well. And how about yourself? I'm doing great, especially having you on because I just finished reading the first part of your book. Your book is over 300 pages long, so about 120 pages, and I have over 26 pages of notes here. So I decided not to read the other two parts. Perhaps we can leave that for a future interview. But may I call you Ken, by the way? Yes, please do. Ken, this is one of those non-traditional interviews that we conduct. It was one of our listeners, David, who referred me to you. He sent me a portion of your book, and I was fascinated. What you're about to tell us tonight is going to open a lot of eyes, a lot of minds, a lot of ears. But aside from what I read about you, can you tell us a little bit of a background of how you got to discuss and research the Titanic and Hindenburg? Well, I guess I'd have to say, first of all, that I I love sailing. I love boats. I lived on a sailboat. Um, So the Titanic has always been a very interesting subject to me. In uh, 1985, I was particularly struck by the fact that they had, had finally found the hull. And when they found the hull, it was in two pieces. And since that day, I've, uh, it's been kind of my, my life's work is to find out why that hull is in two pieces. <clears throat> Actually, it's a lot more pieces than that. But uh, two is enough. You know, that's a major problem with a steel boat. Now, when we think uh, of the Titanic, the first thing that we think is it hit an iceberg. That was the very first thing that we were told. Everybody believes that story. That's it. Period. The investigation, that's what it said. But you found that this is actually very improbable. Why do you say that? 
Well, it's very improbable because it was a steel ship, and the thinnest metal on that ship was half-inch plate steel. This is rolled, hot rolled steel um, by very close standards by the British Board of Trade. It um, had nine decks, and those were a half-inch thick as well. And then it had a um, a bilge hull that was virtually indestructible. That had two layers of one-inch thick steel that was separated by five-foot frames between the two layers. So it had kind of a hollow you know, uh, bottom that was five feet of hollow space underneath the, let's say, the engine deck where the engine laid. <clears throat> um, now, when they show this ship coming apart in two pieces, and I might add that all of what I'm saying is, if, if you have any questions about what I'm saying, is take a look at all of the YouTubes and videos that have been made recently by National Geographic and the History Channel. There's also one there by um, Cameron, the movie maker, that's yeah. about only two minutes and something seconds. And you can watch how they're telling us this ship uh, just literally snaps itself in half. And now this is steel, and steel does not snap. And I might add that, that when these Irishmen put this ship together, they don't just butt the steel up to the seal so they can just rip it apart. It's overlapped a minimum of a foot. And there's two, two rows of rivets down the side. So it does not come apart. In fact, they've uh, they've even tested this in, in tests with actual pieces of the material that they got off of what they call the big piece, which is residing at the Lecture Hotel in uh, Las Vegas right now. And they've actually put these in stress machines and, and pulled on them. And you, you can watch one of them in uh, one of the YouTubes by National Geographic. And those rivets do not let go. <laughs> so the idea of this ship while it is tilting and then breaking itself in half is completely um, <laughs> just, you know, there's, I'll, I'll go to my grave before I'll ever, ever fall for that story. But we shouldn't expect, uh, Ken, to have our listeners believe anything that comes from Cameron's movie. Uh, of course, that was, a, a, you know, mixed with fiction, but especially History Channel and National Geographic. Right. Right. Well, and that that brings up another, you know, part of this whole story is all of these scientists that are involved with with finding this wreckage and documenting the wreckage. They are looking at a debris field that is five miles long and three miles wide and trying to explain how these pieces of iron that were riveted down, you know, one rivet would have held held this, these parts to the ship, but they're asking us to believe that uh, they just came apart like a uh, a piece of soggy driftwood or something would. And how how would you get this the pieces of this ship in such a large area on the bottom of the ocean? Well, so they, they admit, and it they they say this in the official report, which is done by an uh, it's called the New York College of the New York City College Marine Forensics Division, they're the official authority. They work with the Woods Hole Institute, uh, with the Ballard group that found the hole. And the official explanation 
was put together in 2012, and I have that at the website. You can go look at the official drawing, and they call it the low-angle brake theory. By the way, this is totally different than what Cameron depicted in the Titanic movie in 1997. That's the high-angle brake theory. So I want you all to know that the high-angle high brake theory has been dismissed by the Woods Hole Institute. Uh, and that happened in 2005 when they found some additional pieces out of the very bottom of the bilge. So where was I? Um, they've got this ship somehow spread itself out over three by five miles. The New York College of Marine Forensics admits the only way this could happen is that it came apart at the surface. Now, this, this is getting really hard to take because the original story of the Titanic is really hard to take. It's really hard to take because the ship had 16 watertight compartments, and to sink that ship was virtually impossible. Somehow they had to puncture five of the 16 compartments, or it would not have gone low enough in the water to sink. So that means they've got to damage the first five compartments, which is a length of about almost 300 feet of the side of the ship that they've got to put a damage uh, hole through to fill up five compartments. You can understand why I'm saying this is really hard to believe. Uh, one thing has, has been kind of forgotten is that we're talking about two totally different materials here. One is ice. The other is steel. Ice is like a rock material. It's, it's more like a mineral. Well, I shouldn't say mineral. It's, it's more like a, a crystal more like a rock, whereas as steel, well, I shouldn't have used the word crystal either. Well, steel is ductile and it's strong in every dire direction, whereas ice is only strong in compression and it's very weak in every direction. It can absorb blows by crushing. It can, um, you know, it can be shaved off. You can't do these things to steel. Where the, the notion is that the, ice somehow cut steel is is erroneous so i've been i've been you know going over this issue for quite some time trying to figure out well, what's the latest story on that i mean nobody's ever cut steel with ice uh, i haven't found one example well the same so thing they, the same thing i don't mean to interrupt you but the same thing could be said about an aluminum framed airliner yeah you know, perhaps the titanium engines cutting through steel like a knife through hot butter, if you know what I mean. <laughs> very, yeah, that's very apropos for this case, isn't it? Yeah, it's another one of those mysteries. So here we are with the, um, let's see, this, how did the ice cut the steel? And, the, well, so then they started saying, well, it's just, it dented it in. It dented it in. Um, okay. Now, if you go and read the, uh, the hearings that were put together in 1994 by um, Tom Coons. It's called the Titanic Disaster Hearings, and that is where you can people could solve the case of what really happened to the Titanic. It's by going over those hearings because you can see that it was kind of like a uh, Warren Commission, if I might say. Uh, yeah. A very, very much a staged affair. It doesn't take you long reading the the, the book on the uh, the hearings that the questions were just so outlandish and staged. And they accepted the iceberg theory right up front. But um, so they accepted the fact that this ship was damaged at the on the starboard at the bow, and then it gradually filled up these compartments. 
and I and actually I used the wrong word. I said gradually. Okay, they only had 160 minutes to sink this ship, according to the story. That means in 40 minutes, it's got to be one fourth of the way full of water. And in order for that to happen, you'd have to have a 20 square foot hole. But now you need all of these compartments to fill up at roughly the same rate. You know, you can't have one compartment with a big, huge hole in it and one with a pinhole in it because that one compartment's going to hold up the process. You're not going to get the ship sunk in 160 minutes. Are you with me? I'm with you. Well, the, let's, <clears throat> let's dissect this even more. You know, the iceberg okay. story, of course, that, that's and it's fully endorsed, not just by people, but by historians and and scientists alike. But I'm curious, how do you make a connection between the Titanic and the Hindenburg? The Titanic sunk in 1912 and the Hindenburg crashed in 1937 in New Jersey. How did you make that connection? Great question. The answer is fuel consumption. Okay, I let that just pause for a second. But if you want to look at the Titanic and these steamships that ran on coal, you've got the most efficient way of moving people that they ever came up with. For example, a ton of coal. Well, the Titanic took 600 tons of coal per day to run, to operate, to push that ship through the water and make steam heat and baths and everything else for the uh, people aboard. 600 tons a day, five days to cross, 3,000 tons carried about 3,000 passengers. It took a ton of coal to move a passenger across the ocean with the Titanic. Okay, a ton of coal uh, sounds like a lot, but it was only $1. Now, what you've got today is you've got, let's say, the Queen Elizabeth, which is about the last liner operating. <clears throat> it's running on bunker fuel at $500 a, a ton, which is 266 gallons, which comes out to be over $2 a gallon, whereas the Titanic was running on comparable fuel at a half a penny a gallon. So uh, even though they've modernized these ships of today, like, for example, the, the, the QE2 is all very modern uh, diesel-powered. It's got nine uh, BMW diesels that are uh, they, they are only attached to generators. There's just no me mechanical losses in gearing, and then they have electric motors driving the two screws. So it's a it's a very efficient system, but yet it's it's diesels and they're running on diesel fuel, which has to. Uh, I'm sorry, they're running on bunker fuel and charging five hundred dollars, or uh, you know, it costs over a hundred thousand dollars a day to push that ship. Okay, so so even though it, it looks like we've got engines today that are more efficient. The fact of the matter is we've been taken to the cleaners by a factor of about 20 to 1 because they may, took away coal. Now, when we look at the Hindenburg, Hindenburg had a very effective form of anti-gravity. And so with the Hindenburg, even though it weighed half a million pounds, it, in order to get that weight into the air, all you had to do was release a mooring line. And it would rise on its own. You know, what you've got now are very, very heavy planes full of fuel sitting on the runway, race their engines up to full power. They go screaming down the runway, and they're really strained to get off the ground. With this type of technology, you just merely unhooked the mooring line. And then when the craft rose to about 500 feet, you 
started your engines and all the engines had to do was push it forward. What were you pushing? A long cigar-shaped tube. And what, what was the Hindenburg using for fuel? Diesel fuel. It had diesel engines as opposed to every other aircraft out there running on high-octane aviation fuel. To, to push it um, forward. But the actual, right. if you want to call it a balloon, it was full of helium or eventually hydrogen after the embargo. Well, the Germans always used hydrogen. <clears throat> and I might add, there, there's a good reason for that. There's only so much helium on this planet. But, but also, the only way you can get an airship to descend is you've got to let some of your, your gas right. out. And so when you get down on the ground, you're going to have to put some more gas back in. So helium, with, with it being as scarce as it is to actually use as a airship fuel where, for all countries to use helium, I, I, I don't think there's anywhere near enough. Hydrogen is very easy to make. You can make it with solar power, um, you know, it, it, so that you can make it very cheaply that way. And then you can also use it as fuel. So that when you're descending, you need to let your hydrogen gas go. You run that through your engine and you burn that on the on your descent downward. Yeah, but when, when your the, diesel when your diesel tanks start getting depleted because you're using them, of course it's going to go higher. So that's when you let the hydrogen go out, right? That's that's very good. That's exactly right. They uh, the the Hindenburg. Well, any any dirigible that used helium would. Because they they try and hold on to their helium as much as possible, they would trap the exhaust gas, so they'd collect all of the condensate from the engines. Because the combustion engine is basically turning it into CO2 plus plus H2O in the reaction, so they catch all that water to to keep the ship heavy, so that they can come back down easier. I see. You know, not have not have to vent off so much hydrogen. I mean, helium. They're using helium. But the, the Hindenburg didn't care. Hydrogen's cheap. They can make all they want. They just fan it off and then fill it back up when they got on the ground. And then that, their plan was to also use it as fuel. There was going to be a, a fifth engine on the lower part of the stern, but they didn't let them put that engine on. So that would have made it even more efficient. Now, who but and the, why didn't they allow the, the, the use of a hydrogen engine? Well... There, there were a few hydrogen engines. There was a hydrogen engine that went over the North Pole with the, the uh, blimp that the uh, Italian explorer used. 1928, but, wasn't it? Uh, that, that might be about right. I can't remember. 1926, yeah, actually. Um, and he, um, <clears throat> he used hydrogen, but the oil industry is, is scared to death of hydrogen. I can tell you that right now. They do not want us using hydrogen as a fuel. It's the obvious choice for a fuel. I mean, come on. When you when you burn hydrogen, it turns into water. You know, that's a combustion reaction. You know, hydrogen plus oxygen goes boom and produces H2O plus heat. And so you've got a perfectly uh, non-toxic reaction. It will never produce any kind of pollution. And you've always got a source of hydrogen. It's in the water. Well, of course, they tell us that well, we can't get the hydrogen out of the water without actually putting more work in to get the hydrogen out of the water than the amount of energy we'll get out burning the hydrogen in the air. Yep, that's and what we're told. That's what every scientist will tell you, and it's just flat out not true. You've got uh, people out there that have uh, – scientists, et cetera, that have developed ways to have that uh, – 
Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.